Welcome back to AD 79, A Year of Vesuvius, Episode 22, Scarus. Many things come down to us from antiquity, more or less unchanged. Classical architecture, political structures, coinage as a medium of exchange, class distinction. Garum is not one of these. How things change? Just try finding garum even in specialty stores today. And yet Pliny observes that scarcely any other liquid except perfume has become more highly valued. You will recall his at best lukewarm endorsement of perfume from episode 20. So what is this elixir garum? A fish sauce in its simplest terms, something to liven up the otherwise bland flavor of other foods. A liquid, again Pliny is speaking, of a very exquisite nature, prepared from the intestines of fish and various parts that would otherwise be thrown away, macerated in salt. From other sources, we can expand on Pliny's truncated description of how it is made. Clean out an open-air vat, lay down a layer of salt, 12% by volume overall, followed by a layer of viscera and blood, followed by a layer of select herbs and spices. Repeat as necessary, let the sun help it break it down, counting on the salt to kill off undesired bacteria, and so avoid a still more disgusting putrefaction. Stir periodically, wait a matter of weeks or months, draw off the liquid, and there you are. In a hurry, or perhaps you're working in a cooler season, no problem. Mix enough water in a pot to float an egg. Add the fishy bits, some oregano, crushed grape leavings to taste. Bring to a boil. Stir regularly until you've reduced the mixture by two-thirds. Let cool. Strain two or three times. And there you are. Presumably, this measure lacked some of the delicacy of the slow method, or the kettle method didn't produce enough product to be commercially interesting. Firewood costs money. The sun is free. The basic recipe is tweaked according to taste and season, and I suppose terroir is not a term suitable for the ocean. Region? Whatever. Around Carthage, the locals could catch and process scombri, producing the most highly prized sauce, lucrative enough to help rebuild that area's economy ruined by the Punic Wars. Special ingredients distinguished varieties. Old wine and leavings of grape crushings had their place. Observant Jews, like old times, were not forgotten either. Pliny refers to a kosher garum-like condiment called garum castrum. And no recipe. Once the liquid, liquamen, was drawn off, the remains, Latin alex, Still moist, form a kind of fish paste not to be sneezed at if you like fish. Prized, in fact, if done well. Despised and left for the poor, if not. Or so we can infer from the differing sources. Loved around the entire Mediterranean, often compared to the American taste for ketchup or mustard, which might have given it a run for its money, along with the other fine products of the New World unknown to old Europe, Potatoes, tomatoes, chili peppers, tequila. You make do with what you have. 
It has surviving Asian cousins in Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam, and that region. Modern Italy has a modern cousin, Colatura de Alici, bottles of which can be found in the better Italian shops. If you want to stretch a point, Worcestershire sauce is based on anchovies. Too off-putting? Well, Roquefort is made from, what, congealed milk with lots of mold? Probably first eaten in desperation, but once you're used to it, well, there's a reason that commands a good price. Food is what you are used to and what won't kill you outright. Anyway, they liked it, and for the moment, that's all that really matters. But nothing good without some sacrifice, and given the evidence, the results must have been very good indeed. There were grades of quality, for all told. Marshall cites a jar he is at on hand as a fine gift for a very favored guest, especially as it was made from the first blood spilled from a living mackerel. At times it is difficult to tell when Marshall is kidding. Made in spots all around the Mediterranean, the detritus of the work is of interest to archaeologists, confirming some of the literary record. The stuff was in such demand that it spawned an industry, an industry that made at least one man quite rich, or at least able to give the appearance of being quite rich, then as now, outward appearances can be deceiving, debt versus assets-wise. Carthage may have gotten rich on the proceeds of their special brand, according to Pliny, but he singles out Pompeii as well. And in Pompeii, the most notable of those in the garum trade was Pompeii's own Scaurus. We know the name for a variety of sources, not least of all the urchii, or long, thin jugs, in which the stuff was stored. Like any good marketer, he had each jug marked by his own brand, Ex Officina Scaurus, from the workshops of Scaurus. These stamped urci, or rather painted with red paint, are found all about the town. Like the author who names appear above the title, or the brand name that overrides the product, think Kleenex, his jars need only his name. Think Dr. Pepper, or Mr. Pibb, or Johnny Walker. He offered variety and also some sub-brands. We find three urci with the name on it, Umbricia Fortunata, either a freed woman or perhaps a sister, certainly a confederate of his, involved in the business. No fall-off in trade, we may assume. How many fakes were passed off as the real thing, one wonders? Did it really make that much difference? Regardless, in numbers, we can deduce he enjoyed a local market share of about 29%. That assumes that none of the unmarked jugs are his or counterfeits of his. And his stuff wasn't limited to Pompeii or environs. His stuff was good enough to be shipped as far away as Spain, itself no small producer of quality garum, perhaps a colony of Italian expatriates who craved the taste of home. Was it simply marketing, or was it discernibly superior, or at least unique or predictable? Certainly it was good enough to justify packing it up in quantity and shipping it as far away as Byzantium, Carthage, Phoenicia. And the proceeds were nothing to sneeze at. They were enough to buy him one of the nicer houses in Pompeii, and a villa. We know it's his house because of the business. The House of Scaurus, 
an old Samnite house refurbished for modern post-earthquake tastes. Scarus put his mark on it by placing, well, his marks on the floor. In tile work. Not entirely surprising. Clearly this stuff was his life, and he took professional pride in it. The spirit of the successful businessman who makes it big and probably bores to tears everyone he meets because all he wants to talk about is his one overriding passion. As business logos filled the houses of some modern entrepreneurs, so it was with Scarus. In his case, the four corners of the household impluvium, the shallow pool open to the sky in large Roman houses, impossible for visitors to ignore, were marked by black-and-white mosaics depicting long, narrow jugs in which his product was contained. Each of these are marked by its special name and quality. The flower of garum made of the mackerel, a product of Scourus from the shop of Scourus. The flower of the quamen, the flower of garum made from mackerel, a product of Scourus. The best liquamen from the shop of Scourus about these mosaics. The practice of marking a store entrance with black and white stones has been a standard issue at least in the early part of the last century, and many of which have thankfully survived normal wear and tear and the vandalisms of post-modernity. Ancient examples also abound in Eostia Antica near Rome, covering the public parts of business enterprises there, mostly with pictorial representations of the business involved, and some of them quite large. What is curious is the less-than-brilliant execution relative both to modern tile work, but more to the point relative to the known abilities of ancient mosaicists. From the oversized Battle of Isis mosaic, about 9 by 16 feet, resembling a bike brace pile-up, to the exquisite street musicians of Dioscorides, measuring about 17 by 16 inches, clearly the skill set was not lacking. Okay, granted, those two and those like them are intended as works of art and the budget is going to be higher, whereas the commercial mosaics in Ostia Antica near Rome are arguably utilitarian. But the Ewers of Scaurus, those are part of the showpiece of the public side of his private house, the work there is, well, amateurish, the lettering in particular. Individual letters are not uniform in size. They are unmoored from any straight baseline, unrestrained by any common height. They heal and careen. They're a mess. They're worse than the painted posters on the street, which theoretically were intended for a shorter shelf life, which is all the more strange when you consider the boilerplate template of engraved inscriptions of even the meanest sort, or the bronze lettering. The imagination wanders. Perhaps he was unhappy with the results, refused to pay, had the price cut, intended to get the work scrapped and improved, but never got around to it. One of those house projects that one means to get to, but as the years go by, never quite happens. And it wasn't as if Scourus didn't have other things on his mind. Luxury houses and the fixings are all well and good, but what does the self-made man who can afford whatever he wants really want? He wants to step up the class ladder. Not for himself, mind you. That ship weighed anchor the moment Fishman Scourus was born. 
Something there is in rich people that wants an outlet in politics. Vanity, membership to an exclusive club, power to benefit the family business. It's another one of those things that has come down to us from the ancients. For some, like the young Vespasian, the lure proved absent, and it was only an insistent mother that put that emperor on the cursus honorum. Here it was the parent himself who set the boy on his frankly stellar career. For the younger Scaurus was freeborn, a citizen, eligible for the honors and responsibilities that are open to free men of wealth and respectability. He, we learn, became a city magistrate, and a respectable one at that, if the engravings are to be believed. A credit to his town, the pride of his parents. His tomb survives, and it's a model of the stonecutter's art, the words oriented neatly down a center pivot, the letters sharp and even. So why did the mosaicists get a pass? A mystery. The tomb, just outside the city gate, and it reads, To Aulus Umbricius Scaurus, son of Aulus of the Menanian tribe, duumvir with judicial power. The town councillors voted for him a site for his monument, two thousand sesterces for his funeral, and an equestrian statue to be set up in the forum. It ends with a jolting line, his father Scaurus dedicated this to his son. Poor Scaurus, proof once more that money is no defense against personal tragedy. Whether there were other children, we do not know. One likes to think so. At the very least, there is no evidence that the business faltered before the eruption. Final note, what happened? Why did Garum not thrive and survive into the Middle Ages and beyond? One theory is the decline and fall of salt tax. Takes a lot of salt to make Garum. The powers that were priced it out of the market. Or so the theory goes. In the meantime, that is to say, next time... Justa, the Jarndice v. Jarndice of its time. Until then, thank you for listening, and if you're feeling flush, don't be shy about tossing something into the tip jar.